from the National Catholic Register. This is Register Radio, bringing light and clarity to the news and topics that affect your life. Can we trust news media? People consume more media than ever, but seem to trust journalists less and less. Why is that? That's a question explored this weekend at a conference hosted by EWTN News and Franciscan University of Steubenville. It was called Journalism in a Post-Truth World. The conference was the brainchild of Franciscan University President Father Dave Pavanka, who joins us now. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Executive Director of the National Catholic Register and host of EW and host of Register Radio. I'm joined by Matthew Bunsen, Executive Editor for EWTN News. Matthew, we have the privilege again of being in studio here in Washington, D.C. A rare and treat. Absolutely. It's just wonderful to see you, but also to have Father Dave Pavanka here in our presence. Um, all of us in this room are Franciscan uh, students, if you will, graduates. Um, you were there for a Part, part of your education. Part of my education, yeah. Exactly. One of my I gra- favorite parts of my education. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. I graduated in 98, and of course, Father Dave, 89? Yes, very good. Yeah. I'm impressed. Yes. yes. So it's really a, a privilege um, to work with you on this conference that we have all been a part of. Uh, it's uh, it was here in D.C. Uh, this this weekend. Uh, it was at the Washington D.C. Museum of the Bible on March 10th and 11th. A couple hundred participants attended, either by uh, joining the live stream or in person. Uh, and so we had a houseful of journalists and influencers. Uh, and news readers, uh, of course, interested in the state of journalism today, especially how journalists, how media cover the faith. So, Father Dave, as I understand it, this was your brainchild, that you really had discussions about uh, about this conference that you and Matthew helped uh, work out to, to be what it was this weekend. A brainchild might be just, just a stretch. <laughs> uh, but um, no, Matthew and I, I believe it was Utah was the first time it we started was. talking yes, about it, it. Right. And we're just talking about the state of the media. There were certain couple of things that had happened recently that uh, I was just frustrated with how things are presented, how they're reported on, how it seems like you would read one page from one source and one page from another source, and they weren't even using the same language. So Matthew and I were in a conference in Park City, Utah, and we just began talking, and it was just kind of those, what if, you know, what if? And, and from that, truth be told, uh, Matthew's done the majority of the work and with, with my team, but uh, I'm just really excited, really excited about this opportunity. Yeah, it's. Uh, I remember the, the conversation vividly, and then we picked it up a few times uh, right. while we were trying to figure out, okay, what would this look like? Uh, one of the logical places would be at, at Steubenville to do a conference like this. But then I think we both – around the same time, we looked at each other and decided D.C. is the best place right. for this. This is not just uh, the seat of political power, but also this is sort of the information superhighway conduit. Absolutely. And we have so many journalists here. But for you, why was it important also to have it in D.C.? Well, a couple of things is that, as you were stated, it's just kind of the center of everything here. But I felt that uh, EWTN and Francis University being able to bring in uh, truth, uh, something objective, 
in a world, in particular in a culture right now, going everything in craziness that's on D.C., it's, it seemed to me that we're in some ways standing in contradiction to what's, what's largely held is in the culture today, D.C. particularly, in, in media. So to be able to hold it here kind of in the center, it seemed to me makes sense. And it was funny. I do remember when we both kind of – I remember distinctly saying, yes, it just it, – it needs to be in D.C. Right. Maybe because – this is where the battle is being fought most intensely, and to try to bring some light, some clarity to this topic, I think will be very helpful. Well, and, and the the title of this conference has been, uh, and we settled on this very early too, journalism in a post-truth world. Uh, from your standpoint, what do we mean by that phrase? Well, that's the thing that I, that I've really been re- reflecting on, and, and just on, on maybe what I hope and I desire to get it. It seems to me that we're not even speaking the same language anymore, that, that if there's nothing objectively true, then you can't agree on anything. I mean, there, there's, there's no guardrails. There's no boundaries. There's no rule. There's no playbook. And, and because of that, you're seeing this literally lived out in the media. I, I had an opportunity number, about 18 months ago to have an op-ed piece with USA Today published. It was like we're using two different languages. The words that I was told I can't use. You can't say biological woman. You can't say science. It's like... We're not even reading out of the same playbook. Yeah. So that if we live in this post-truth world, well, then how, how, does, how does somebody responsibly report a story? How do two people actually have a debate, right, to, to people of goodwill who maybe see it differently? Well, if, if there's nothing firm to stand on, then what's the starting point? And I just thought that was a great place for us to start. You know, it's interesting that you say that. As I was preparing for this conference, I was listening to um, a a great writer on religion and reporting, and that's Terry Mattingly, who is a a part of our panels on on, uh, uh, this week weekend. And, you know, he was saying that it used to be that there was a sort of religion in the newsroom, and that religion in the newsroom was a a certain standard that they applied to journalism, and that standard uh, was about what they called objectivity, which really is an attempt to be accurate, an attempt to be fair and tell both sides, a certain set of standards that most journalists agree to. And what he's saying now is that's gone. Even in the newsroom, a certain set of standards that people agree to is, is often gone, and that's, it's veered more uh, towards opinion, um, but without saying so. And, and so, um, you know, where they never wanted to say there was bias in a newsroom, but now uh, it, it, it is actually um, bias, opinion, you know, coming into the newsroom, but they're not even naming it opinion. Sure. And so I think that this is a, a very, very important discussion for us to be having right now. Uh, I, I, I think that it is true that we see um, a great distrust in the audiences in general for news media, even sometimes Catholic media. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I think to use the word guilty, I think both everybody's as guilty on that as well. And what it does is it becomes ultimately much more divisive. I, I can tell what news people are listening to by how they speak to me. It, it's dominating the way they think, um, what, they're, what they care about. And, and I'm really coming about this. You're, you both live in this world. You live in this field. I'm coming more as a consumer and then also as an educator in what we're doing with our students. Right. Well, what is clear is that whereas you, you might have gotten many years ago now um, diversity of opinion um, from one outlet – 
um, you could follow that outlet and, and really understand what's happening in the world from different perspectives. And now you really, in order to do that, have to follow uh, very many outlets and yes. understand clearly where they're coming from and that you will not see the whole picture until you look at all of them. And that's not something that many consumers do. We, we tend to be in silos of a particular opinion and we, we don't always venture out. And I can say I'm guilty as that as, as any. Well, we have echo chambers now built in where you're able to self-select what you want to read and hear, and it, all it does is reinforce the bias. But doesn't this also have the impact uh, – and, Father, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. We have a, a polls today. Fortune magazine just came out uh, with a report that half of Americans now actively believe that news media is deliberately misleading them. And where do we go to reestablish any sense of credibility on the part of journalism today? That's, I had not heard that statistic. That's striking. It does raise the question about well, where are they going? Um, is, to your point, are they looking at just one particular source? Um, I, what establishes the credibility of it? I think, I think ultimately, I guess it's, it's – I hate to say this. It's probably a, a financial situation. As soon as people start not paying to a particular – a, a news media and they're actually going somewhere else. I don't know. We're so consumed with money. Is it just stri- strictly a, a bottom line is dollars that people start turning off the TV or start deleting the app? I, I, I would love it for it to be that there's some sense of integrity that comes back to the whole journal. But I don't have a great deal of confidence in that, honestly. Yeah. The word yeah. CNN comes to mind. Well, I would say there many people are driven by clicks because click mean clicks mean money. Yeah, and, absolutely. Um, and that's that's the sad state of affairs. But it also it is a consumer thing. You know, it's it's what we are consuming, and we have to be very careful about that, not to to be so click click happy. Yeah. Um, and and everybody knows everybody who's in media knows the kind of things, especially religious topics, that will light up the internet. Right. There are a couple of things that only because I knew this conference was coming, just paying attention more, um, they, they really target a, um, like an interest or a, what's the word I'm looking for? Just to try to capture somebody's imagination. So if they can try to get you, and I've, in the last many weeks, I've specifically not clicked things only because I know what they're trying to do. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's not authentic. And what you said is so important. You use the word consumer and opinion. And I think that's absolutely right. Is no longer, I don't know where I can go just to find a well-written piece that simply states the facts. Again, in a, in, in a world that doesn't believe in truth, maybe facts don't matter either. But it's all opinion. And you just look at the words. And I, I think the last class I took in this was probably in early college, so 30 years ago. But they were told don't use certain words because it's now state opinion. But that's kind of out the window a long time ago. It is. It is. And the more we recognize that, the better. Uh, the more we're judicious about what we read and, and how, uh, how much time we spend on something, I think the better. But, but this is the world. And it's not one thing Terry Mattingly said. It's not going away anytime no. soon. And it is, it is consumer driven. It is financially driven. Um, and we, we need to come to terms with that and understand it's not always just a bias against religion. It is often uh, based on the irreligiosity mm-hmm. of our country now. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a big part of the discussion at the conference. And the conference was designed 
to be a discussion, not to be a bunch of talks. It's really right. a bunch of panels right. where we have the opportunity to talk. Yeah, I have Father, a couple. You've, you've stressed okay. the importance of you want this to be. You wanted this to be from the beginning a conversation. Right, right. Yeah. And part of that is 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 I'm really coming into this as the common man. Is is the person who's the consumer who gets frustrated in that, and and I didn't want just talking individuals with without. Let's talk about this. Let's dialogue. Let's debate it in times and try to get to some sense of of truth and what's right and what's good. But but ultimately for the consumer, I mean, you use the word reading. I I don't know if a lot of people, especially young people, if they actually read the media, they they look at Twitter, they look at Instagram, and that's primarily where they're. Some of these topics are really complicated and nuance is important and they're literally getting a 30-second 30 30 second clip and feel now they're educated on something. Well, nuance is a very big word and, and that comes up you know, when you talk about faith and, and religion reporting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so nuance is key and you can't skim nuance. No, no. Right. No. It's like just like it's hard to write prudence. You know, it's hard to put prudence on paper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, you really need to think it through. Uh, so... We're on Register Radio right now. We're talking with Father Dave Pavanka about the conference Journalism in a Post-Truth World that was held at the Museum of the Bible this weekend, partnership of EWTN News and Franciscan University. You're listening to Register Radio on EWTN. There's more when we return. nearly a century, the National Catholic Register has been moving minds, moving hearts, moving souls, and enriching our readers' lives by spreading the truth of the gospel. Today, that tradition continues with award-winning journalism that goes beyond any secular news service while bringing much-needed light and clarity to the issues and events that affect you and your family's future, all with faithful and courageous reporting guided by the teachings of the Catholic Church. It's more important than ever to join Catholics who depend on the register. Get six free issues today online at ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. That's ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. The National Catholic Register. Read faithfully. Let's return to Register Radio on EWTN. Welcome back. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Executive Director of the National Catholic Register. I am joined by Matthew Bunsen, my co-host, and Father Dave Pavanka. We've been talking about a conference uh, that was held this weekend on journalism and the state of journalism today. We were just talking uh, earlier in this program about uh, some of the reality undergirding uh, this idea of a post-truth world, post-truth journalism, Mm -hmm. how that intersection now, uh, we're seeing it in culture, we're seeing it in politics, uh, for a faithful Catholic uh, this seems increasingly alarming, and you're an educator. What are you seeing in younger Catholics, new students at Steubenville? What's their background now like, and are you having to grapple with some of these things the minute oh, they walk in the door? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, at Franciscan University, I was just working with a couple of rectors in seminaries, and they said they're experiencing the same thing. And these are guys that have already gone through colleges, and they're in seminary. Um, much more compartmentalized that they've in, in essence. So let's take the 
you know, sexual identity, gender identity, all of that going on. Basically, that for a, not all of the kids, but for a large percentage of them, um, it, it's kind of a settled thing. It just is what it is, and, and they feel that the church, largely because they haven't heard much said about it, uh, doesn't have anything to say about it, or. Uh, isn't relevant about it. And and that's one of the things that I think they like about being at Franciscan is that we're willing to talk about these issues and discuss them and dialogue about them. But they're coming in deeply impacted by the culture, uh, deeply impacted by some of the things that we've talked about already. Uh, is there objective truth? I mean, the number one thing now is uh, to to be, quote unquote, tolerant and, and to allow anybody to think and believe what they want. So to be able to redefine some of their fundamental presuppositions is, is key. And, and we see that across the board. I mean, things that uh, the, the we wouldn't even imagine 25 years ago have become normal and commonplace. I mean, a good percentage of the kids, depending what community they come from, have found people of, of same-sex unions, that, that that's a part of – I mean – 25 years ago, I didn't know anything. Uh, I didn't have people in my life that I knew that was in those situations. A large percentage of the kids do now. Right. And it's to be nice. It's the theology of nice. We just have to be nice. Right. And, and the, love is love. Right. Right. That's the number one virtue. And to be able to talk about how does one do this uh, in truth? They may get tired of me hearing this, but I would say truth, humility, and charity. And those, two th- those three things need to come together. If you separate any of them, we're going to find ourselves in more and more trouble. So I can't talk to you this week, uh, Father Dave, without talking about uh, the way that Franciscan made it into the news cycle. Um, And this week that was because um, Franciscan University will no longer have a monthly uh, traditional Latin Mass. Um, The bishop of the diocese, uh, Bishop Jeffrey uh, Montforton, of uh, the Diocese of Steubenville, um, asked that the Mass no longer be celebrated on campus. Um, I understand that St. Peter's, which is a camp, uh, a parish church uh, nearby, does mm-hmm. still have uh, the traditional Latin Mass, but this um, must be a disappointment to some on the campus. Is it a large group of people? Um, do I have the story right first? That's always important, accuracy. Yeah. But it, who does this affect? Yeah, I, for, first off, yeah, the basic – what you basically stated is in fact the case. So uh, it would have been Monday, I guess, about a week ago. Uh, the bishop um, – yeah, I, I found out that this was going to happen and I called the bishop and, and talked to him and I asked him if there was maybe another way to read this, another way to look at it and – and I've made it very public that I talked to the bishop on a couple of occasions uh, advocating for, for the university and the students. And his final decision was that he felt that it was best to have it at one place and he would like to have it at St. Peter's, which is one mile from campus. He had a hard time defending having uh, two different sites mm-hmm. within literally a mile of each other. One of the things that, that I think is fair is you said some of the people on campus. I think honestly – most of the people on campus, even if they don't prefer the extraordinary form, they were still sad that that that's not going to be offered there because some of their classmates, they know that they actually do, that, that that's something that they were raised with. It's something that they're familiar with. So when it was being taken away and, and having to go down to St. Peter's, I think across the board there was a sadness, even if some of the kids don't exercise that. Uh, with those who who are part and in, in continually go to the extraordinary form Latin Mass, uh, I met with them just about 48 hours after I talked to the bishop. And they were – honestly, I was very edified by our students. They were sad. They were disappointed. 
Uh, but they also made a commitment to pray for the bishop. They said, we're going to offer a, nov- a novena to the bishop for the bishop starting on the Feast of St. Patrick's. And I was just very edified by the way they were handling it. What yeah. is it about the extraordinary form that draws these students? Yeah, I think there's a whole mix. Uh, some of them, it's simply what they were raised with. And, and that was something that when I came back to the university, uh, there was a larger growing population that that's all some of these kids have known. And and if that's what you're raised with, was, I mean, my goodness, I wouldn't want that to be taken away from me either. Uh, some of them, it's it's just it's uh, it's different. It's something I think that's one of the beautiful things about college, is it allows you to experience different liturgies. We have a Byzantine liter- liturgy on campus uh, once a month. We also are going to now start the Chaldean liturgy. Um, I think to be exposed to uh, different liturgies is really beautiful, and some of the students just do that for that purpose. Yeah. And yeah. there's a sense of sacred. I think um, I think that's what I've seen of the people that I know in my local community. They really crave a greater sense of sacred, yeah. and it's not always offered uh, in their parish um, for whatever reason. Sometimes for us in our parish, there's a space issue, and so sometimes uh, the, the mass is actually celebrated in uh, our our gym for the school because our, our parish is too big. And, um, and of course, people just want a sense of sacred. That's sure. where the kids play ball, right? Sure, now, that's sure. an abnormal you know, situation. But really, I think people are craving a sense of sacred. I, I wanted to ask how you foster um, renewal of the liturgy on campus in a moment where we're trying to pr- promote Eucharistic um, uh, um, re- a re- revival of, mm-hmm. of, of belief in Christ in the Eucharist. How's that happening on the campus? Well, I think we're we're very blessed in in that in many respects, the Eucharist, the centrality of the Eucharist, is really part of our our campus. As you may or may not know, we have mass five times a day on campus. Uh, the mass that I honestly that I'm honest most impressed is the six thirty in the morning in mass. When you go and you see two hundred college students at six thirty in the morning, that's really impressive. We also have Eucharistic adoration in the Port St. Clair 24-7 for the entire semester. That's beautiful. We have the Blessed Sacrament in every residence hall. So it's really at the heart of, of what we are at the campus. But also I think you know, I think that we celebrate the Eucharist very beautifully on campus as well, that it's something that the, the friars take seriously in our responsibility to care, the care and concern for the sacrament and the beauty of the sacrament and the integrity of the sacrament. Uh, so... Uh, the number of times that I've had people who have come to Mass, just a normal, a normal quote-unquote, normal noon Mass, not that long ago, a woman was visiting with her daughter, and at the conclusion of Mass, she approached me, and she was crying. And she said, that's one of the most beautiful things I've seen, to be around a group of young people, college students, in Mass, singing, worshiping. It's, it's a great blessing to be a part of it. You know, the first thing that comes to my mind is true worship is beautiful. It is. It is. Yeah, in almost any form. It like is. True worship is beautiful. It is. it is. And attractive. Yeah, yeah. The the worship of the heart where where the the heart is engaged and the mind and the body. It's just yeah. It is. I want to close with something I think that's very appropriate during Lent. It's um, been a, a sad um, a sadness for alumni of Franciscan and anyone who knew her, but I'm thinking of uh, Amber Van Bickle. I didn't personally know her. Uh, the register helped promote her writings. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and of course, she died recently after a long suffering um, with cancer. She's got, is it five young kids? Mm-hmm. Um, many with special needs, a few with special needs. 
But she uh, stories that we've done on her and your interview with her before she knew of her um, of her cancer, where she's actually talking about suffering, and this was just the suffering of her of experiencing children with. Um, special needs and not having healing for those mm-hmm. children and just the struggle of that. But as she talked about, we're made for another world and that um, this life is full of suffering, I think speaks to a lot of people. Everything we put up about Amber and her witness uh, just skyrocketed on our website. Talk about clicking on something yeah, important yeah, that was yeah, important. Yeah. Why does this message hit home and, and why should we read it? Right, right. Um, I think Amber's story, yeah, it, it connected in a very human, very personal level. You know, I, it, the part of it that w- was personal for me, too, is first off, I've known Amber for a long time. And my brother was diagnosed with the same cancer that Amber had about mm-hmm. two months from each other. And my brother passed away in about six months oh, wow. and, and Amber lived for about three years. But David and I were talking. And I said, which which is better, right? Um, watching Amber really suffer. She had about 18 good months, but suffer for the last, it's just horrible. And, and what I said, I was able to give a, a sharing at the funeral, was that some beautiful things have been said about Amber and, and just wonderful. And I said, and I agree with them, but I think Amber would be deeply embarrassed by them. And the reason being, what I said to the people is that all the things that are going through your mind went through her mind. Why me? Why does this have to happen? How is this a loving God? What now? Where are you, God? Why have you abandoned me? Why does it have to hurt so much? Why does there have to be pain? I said, I've walked with Amber for a number of years, and she asked all of those questions. But what she also was able to do is she says, uh, I was able to surrender, and in my surrender, I found God. And that's what I shared with them is, is that in our surrender, the questions, are, the questions don't mean we lack faith. The questions are honest and they're real and they're authentic. But it's in that surrender and saying, hey, not my will but yours. Lord, I know that you are present. I know. And that's really what Amber was able to do. And in that, she says she found God. Um, you, I think you guys reposted an article Thank she wrote you. when, when uh, miracles don't happen or, or when prayers don't get answered. It's right. just... But that's everybody's story. I mean, it's so human. It's so honest. Yes, to ask and to to allow yourself to be conformed to Christ. To be and empty. most often that happens through suffering, uh, through humility. And mm-hmm. those, are, those are not virtues in today's world. Yes, so yeah. it's a beautiful thing to end on, especially this Lent. And I just want to thank you for the conference, uh, both you, Matthew, and, and uh, Father Dave, for, uh, you know, for putting this together um, with the joint organizations and, and for being on the show. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Remember, for more news, analysis, and commentary, check out the National Catholic Register online at ncregister.com. Thanks for joining us here on Register Radio on EWTN. For Matthew Bunsen and our producer, Mike McCall, I'm Jeanette DeMello, and I pray that until next week, God bless you.